what if we could not just slow down some of the changes we associate with aging or Alzheimer's dementia, like memory loss and brain fog and forgetfulness? But what if we could actually reverse them? Today, we will learn how by taking a look at the entire body to improve the health of the brain. Hello, and welcome to Elder Health Connection, a podcast where I gather innovators in elder health care to discuss their unique perspectives on caregiving and care receiving. My name is Caroline Morris, and I use my combined experience in biochemistry, physical therapy, health coaching, and growing up next door to my grandparents to dig deep into the complexities of aging and then draw out practical solutions that can fit into your life. I record this show from my home in Alexandria, Virginia, sometimes with the input from my dogs, Vinny and Barry. Thank you for joining us today. Today, we welcome Dr. Andrew Wong to the show to discuss brain health and all the ways that we can actually impact it in a meaningful way, not just slowing down a disease process, but actually reversing it by looking at the body as an entire system. Dr. Wong is the co-founder of Capital Integrative Health, which is in Bethesda, Maryland, and he practices integrative functional medicine as well as medical acupuncture. He is also the host of the Capital Integrative Health podcast, which I highly recommend. I always learn something when I listen to his episodes there. It was a very, very informative interview, and I appreciate how Dr. Wong really embodies this integrative approach, which means seeing value in many different approaches to health and medicine and not excluding one for the other. And you'll even hear him catching me doing some more comparison or black and white thinking, whereas he has really mastered this integrative approach of bringing the best of everything together so that the body can heal itself and we can live in a more healthful and meaningful way. Enjoy the episode. So today we're joined with Dr. Andrew Wong. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Caroline, for having me. Appreciate it. I am so excited for our conversation on brain health today. It's such a big and important topic. But before we get into that, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your medical background? Sure. Well, I live in Montgomery County right here in the DMV and grew up in Virginia, actually in the southern part of Virginia, but moved here over 15 years ago now and went to school at Georgetown for my internal medicine residency. Before that, I was at Tufts for medical school. And after internal medicine, I went into as worked as a hospitalist at Suburban. And then I started doing primary care at Johns Hopkins in North Bethesda. At that point, I, after a while, kind of getting more into integrative medicine and more preventative approaches, I worked at Casey Health Institute, which is in Gaithersburg, for a few years, and then started my own practice, uh, co-founded Capital Integrative Health, which is a a private practice in Bethesda, with a friend, uh, Liz, who's an acupuncturist. 
So we've had this practice for since 2015 and gotten into functional neurology and, and basically brain health and root causes of, of, you know, brain issues and how to, how to treat that, you know, in an integrative way, meaning both using conventional and natural means um, for the last seven years, I would say is, is when we've kind of been focusing on that. So that's kind of more about me and I have training in um, integrative medicine fellowship, um, I've done some medical acupuncture, which is where I learned more of the the kind of physical anatomic things. I know you're a physical therapist as well. So I've really learned anatomy more through acupuncture more than medical school. And then I think for the functional medicine training, I finished the IFM certification in 2016. I think for your listeners, I also attended, I think it was 2018, IFM had a what's called the Bredesen protocol, which we can talk about today. It talks about uh, ways to treat brain health you know, issues especially for the elderly, right? Because a lot of times with elderly, there's, there's cognitive impairment, there's, you know, mood disorders and things. And there's a lot of things we can do from a, a root cause medicine approach using physiology to, uh, to help people. Very good. And can you tell us what functional medicine is and how it might be different from how you were trained in medical school and residency? Yeah. So I think a lot of us, including myself, you know, our brains are kind of designed to be to be dichotomous, meaning it's either black or white, it's left or right, you know, it's right or wrong, it's bad or good, right? So we know that functional medicine is a type of medicine that is not only, you know, I think additive and synergistic with conventional medicine, but I think in a way is, is really, it's, it's really synergistic. So it can really help support conventional medicine. So I would define conventional medicine as sort of the what of medicine. So what is the diagnosis? You know, you know, is, is there some, you know, imaging or structural aspect, like for instance, if someone has Alzheimer's and they might see on a PET scan, a decrease in glucose uptake in different areas that are, you know, temp- temporal lobes, et cetera, that are, that are more, you know, consistent with Alzheimer's, that would be sort of like the what, in other words, what is going on? So that's very important to, to do and to know. And functional medicine, it really deals with the why of medicine why did this person get Alzheimer's disease? If someone has depression or anxiety or mood disorders, why do they have depression, anxiety, or mood disorders? So it is really a root cause science-based biologic approach to understanding the kind of underlying physiology. The way I kind of look at it is if you're driving a car or you know someone that drives a car and we're in the DMD area, so a lot of people drive cars around here, a lot of crazy traffic. We can see that sometimes cars have problems, right? There's there's warning lights that come on, or maybe the tire pressure is off, or you know some things. But you know you'll be driving the car, and then this light will come on. So if I take that car to the car shop, you know conventionally, like you know if we just said, well, there's a light blinking, right? Or you know something is smoking under the hood. Yes, that is happening. That is true. That's a diagnosis, right? There's a label, but we don't know why that car is smoking. We don't know why that car has a blinking light and that's where functional medicine comes in. What is under the hood that's causing that light to blink or that smoke to go off? So you want to see both. You want to understand, Hey, there's a light blinking. There's something going on. And you have to also understand why that's happening. That's so important. And I think it's an approach that's growing in healthcare, but still not widespread. We, we both got our start in hospitals. So was there a moment you got to early in your career where you just realized you needed more training to fully address concerns or how did that evolution take place for you? 
Yes. Before I do that, I'm going to paraphrase my paraphrase my friend, doctor friend, about um, about acute care medicine because I was in the hospital for three years. Great experience at suburban hospital. I would say Western medicine, conventional medicine, is really good at identifying the root causes of acute care issues. If there's trauma, if there's a broken leg, if there's a heart attack, you know, it's it's really good at getting to the root causes. I think when I just to clarify what I said before, root causes of chronic issues that are unexplained, uh, you know, sort of un not understood. That That's where I think functional medicine really, really comes in. I kind of knew back when I was 17 or 18, when I was volunteering at, at the hospital locally in, in Virginia, that I, I wanted to do something integratively. I, I don't know exactly why, except probably my mom um, always cooked organic food and she kind of helped reverse her own thyroid conditions naturally through organic cooking and exercise and stuff. So uh, both my sister and I are integrative physicians, so there's there's got to be. I don't think that's genetics. I think that's just like <laughs> upbringing. And you know, yeah. I I grew up in an area where you know we were actually on three acres, and there was a lot of nature around, a lot of trees. You know, so that probably played a role too. You know, just just the interest in environmental science and conservation of the earth, and you know, more natural kind of things there. So I, I would say those are some of the factors there in terms of medical training, I didn't really get a lot of exposure to integrative medicine in the conventional medicine training, but it was just because I had this sort of background and this path that I wanted to follow that I knew I would still do that. So mm -hmm. that kind of kept me grounded during that time. Yeah, very good. It's always interesting to me how people's lives and careers end up where they are yeah. and all the factors that come together. So when we talk about chronic conditions that can affect the brain and the health of the brain, what are some of the top things that you look for? Well, there's a lot of different chronic conditions can, that can affect the brain and the brain really needs sleep. So, you know, sleep is really important for body recovery in general and then brain recovery in, in specific. So, so I would say chronic sleep issues is, is really one of the areas that you know, we're going to, we're going to look for as, you know, how's that going to affect the brain. And there's actually evidence now that chronic insomnia and sleep issues can actually affect mood. It can actually be the cause of anxiety and depression, the cause. Mm. Um, it can also be the cause, not just a, not just, not just like a side byproduct, but could be the cause of Alzheimer's dementia. So, so these are, these are things that, you know, these conditions like anxiety, depression can develop over years, dementia can develop over decades someone with chronic insomnia, sleep is so important for brain health that we really focus on that in our clinic, both for prevention and treatment of that. Mm -hmm. And then I, other, other conditions, I would say, when you think about other conditions that people might see, people with fatigue, you know, fatigue is a brain issue. Fatigue essentially means that the brain is, is not producing enough energy to, to, you know, give you energy to feel good, you know? So if someone has fatigue, and, and there's some probably body issues too. There could be gut issues. There could be hormonal issues. There could be a lot of things, but at the end of the day, that signal is going to the brain and the brain's not producing enough, what's called ATP, adenosine triphosphate to make you feel good. And then someone's going to feel fatigue. So I think fatigue is a big one. So I think between sleep and fatigue, you know, those are, those are pretty big, you know, brain issues. And then the other thing's going to be, you know, mood people with mood issues. We know that there's neurotransmitter imbalances. But more than that, I would say there's brain inflammation. So there's certain combinations of 
neurotransmitters that will keep the brain balanced to keep the brain happy, right? Just like we talk about nutrition, like maybe, maybe we want to have a balanced diet and eat some protein and the salad and maybe healthy carb or something like that as an example of, you know, what is often recommended. But if someone just ate like, you know, one of those things only, right, that's not, that's not really a balance necessarily. So, you know, the brain's kind of like that. If you have too much of one neurotransmitter, not others, if there's chronic inflammation going on, that can actually cause mood issues too. You know, those are things we experience a lot. I think most of us have had some issues with sleep at some point in our life, definitely fatigue and mood as well. And I think what you're saying in there too is it's not just a normal part of aging. I think sometimes people think fatigue in particular is just a part of getting older, of slowing down, but maybe there's something else going on that can be addressed. Yeah, it is true that as we get older, the the brain and the body probably becomes over time slightly less efficient at producing energy. So that there is something to that, but you can optimize your ability to produce energy and stave off fatigue, so to speak. If you do, you know, certain lifestyle factors and nutritional factors and, 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 you know, movement factors and everything to help your body, you know, age healthily. Right. So, so people that are hiking, you know, in their nineties or something, or they're farming in their nineties, or even like they get to a hundred, you know, things like that. That's, that's definitely, you can see that that's not only genetic. I mean, there could be some genetics involved, but we also see that, you know, these people have lived long, healthy lives, probably because of these routines they're doing, these healthy routines day in and day out that, that they're doing. And I think it's not ever too late either. And we can talk about that later, but, you know, we have stories of people that are, you know, a little older and, and they're kind of reversing their chronic conditions or they're improving their brain health. So one of the things that I, I want to say is that when I was growing up, I had an Encyclopedia Britannica. I believe it was, um, and world book and stuff. So world book encyclopedia. So I think I had a whole set of world book encyclopedias when I was growing up. And I remember reading something about the brain at that time, just something that sticks out to me. I don't probably remember anything else from that whole encyclopedia list, but it basically said that the brain health, you know, and just overall physiology peaks at age 29, you know, and basically at age 29, you start losing brain cells and you can't get them back. And and this, this was this whole theory of sort of like brain decline after the age of 29 was disproven by scientists in the mid 1990s or late 1990s. So at that point, scientists, I think it was 1998, they discovered that, well, actually the brain regenerates at any age, at any age. That means that we can create new brain cells even as, even as older adults. And I think this is a very important finding. And yet I don't think it's necessarily really talked about or understood much in mm -hmm. probably medical population or the general population. So, you know, people are like, oh, I'm losing memory or I'm having brain fog. I'm feeling tired. That's just aging. Well, yes, like I said, there's some aspects of hormonal levels and neurotransmitter levels and energy efficiency and things that decline. But we also know that the brain has the capacity to regenerate mm -hmm. and certainly can also develop new neural networks, right? So you see you see sometimes, you know, overall brain cell number does decline, but you can still regenerate new brain cells. There's, there's neuronal stem cells that produce more brain cells. And then there's the idea of increasing neural networks to keep those brain cells that are, that are there, that are alive, more efficient. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say in my work, I see it the most rehabilitating after a stroke where 
a part of the brain has died, but people can still make significant gains by creating new networks or, you know, working around the areas of injury. But it's also nice to know that we can do that without having a stroke too, you know, and still improve, improve the health of the brain. Yes. What are some conditions that people should really start to seek a more functional approach to health? So we talked about some of the underlying issues of insomnia, but what about like a diagnosis they might have that it might be time to think again about the approach? Yeah, before we get into diagnoses, I I just want to kind of mention for, for people that don't have obvious brain health issues, you know, we all we all want to preserve our brain health. And, and I think in our clinic, sometimes we're going to look at diagnoses, but we're also going to look at what are the nutrients that the brain needs to thrive? Because a lot of times when you give the nutrients and the good, the quote unquote good stuff to the brain, then, then the diagnosis kind of can go away or get better as a side, as a side benefit of that. So nourishing the roots, so to speak, to, mm-hmm. you know, help the leaves of the tree, so to speak. So I think just to kind of give, give us like an overview, things that, that any, any person's brain would need are, are oxygen, are light, circulation, like enough blood flow to the area. Certainly it's different um, vitamins, like vitamins and minerals called micronutrients. And then macronutrients to so things like healthy proteins and fats would be helpful. And then movement, you know, you need, you need to, to move as well. So, and then sleep. So I think these are just some basic things just to say so that really um, anytime someone comes into our clinic with, with, you know, brain health diagnosis, which we'll talk about in a sec, we're really looking at that first before we say, okay, let's treat this diagnosis. So basically how's the oxygen? Are you getting outside, you know, getting enough lights to activate the, the, the pineal gland and, and things like that. So are you getting uh, movement? You know, these are just basic things, you know, to help your circulation. How's your nitric oxide levels, things like that. So, so from a diagnostic perspective, if someone is starting to get brain fog, what is called co- subjective cognitive impairment or SCI, that means, you know, they, they used to be really sharp, but now they can't remember people's names or can't remember driving directions. You know, their executive function skills are, are less. They have trouble making decisions. They have trouble with attention, you know, any of these things. We want to think about, you know, how's the health of their brain? So this could be, uh, there's three categories of cognitive impairment. One is subjective cognitive impairment without any objective, uh, you know, findings. And there's mild cognitive impairment and you can do some neuropsych testing and things like that to, to, you know, assess that, but often on a structural exam, like an MRI, it's normal. And then you have something like AD or dementia, Alzheimer's dementia, or other neurodegenerative conditions in which there's usually structural implications or or findings like on an MRI, you might have uh, atrophy of the hippocampus, which is the area involved in memory. And you'll see that in Alzheimer's, but you wouldn't necessarily see that earlier in that progression. So that that's one condition that, you know, people come in with. And then certainly people that have mood issues and trauma issues, you know, they might have anxiety, depression, but also ADD, OCD, PTSD, very, very common, actually, probably underdiagnosed, you know, super underdiagnosed. So all those conditions are brain conditions. And what people don't realize, I think, is that the brain is connected to the rest of the body. So if someone might be coming in with irritable bowel syndrome, they might be coming in with chronic pain, right? Or something like that. And, and a lot of these things are, are brain issues too. They're not just musculoskeletal or, you know, structural or gut issues, because those are important too. And we, we want to address that too, but you have to address the brain at the same time. Otherwise the person will not get better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It makes sense that 
it's all connected. You know, we really, I think it's a false um, separation to think mental or mind or emotional conditions aren't body conditions or vice versa. We really can't separate anything out there. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that you look at that foundation first, like you mentioned of, are you getting daylight exposure? Are you sleeping? What are you eating? Do you have enough blood flow or oxygen? Because without those foundations, it's really hard to heal. I should mention too, yes, I should also mention blood sugar regulation. So sometimes people have all these things, but if the blood sugar is too high or too low, that's not good for the brain either. So the brain does need a certain amount of blood glucose or blood sugar. And I believe the brain consumes like 20% of all glucose, you know, in the body. So it's a pretty high functioning organ. There's a lot of stuff going on in the brain, a lot of electrical activity. So, so we need a lot of blood sugar, blood glucose, sort of like energy going to the brain, but we can't have too much or too little at one time because that causes brain inflammation. That's stressful for the brain. So we want to have a nice steady flow of blood sugar. And so people have, you know, cognitive issues. One of the things, first things we're going to look at is things like a hemoglobin A1C or an insulin level, a fasting insulin level. So we can see, you know, how their blood sugar is, or they might even say, after I, eat a, after I eat a heavy carbohydrate meal, two hours later, I feel brain fog. I can't move. You know, I'm, I'm just so tired. We know that, that that person is probably eating too many carbohydrates and that they're getting a reactive hypoglycemia, meaning uh, after that heavy meal, they're getting a lower, lower blood sugar and that's affecting their brain health, at least temporarily. Mm-hmm. So would you say it's common that you find that there's a blood sugar component to these um, presentations? It's very common because 88% of people in the U.S. have metabolic syndrome. This is a research from UNC. And we know that um, metabolic syndrome means that this person likely has trouble with blood sugar regulation a a lot of times. It could be cholesterol issues. It could be blood pressure issues. But overall, they have trouble with energy regulation. And this means that they're getting blood sugar in their system. It's not actually getting to the organs, the tissues that it should get to. And it's often staying out in the system. And this means that, you know, that means it's, it's staying on the system. So the, that means the brain's getting too much blood sugar, too little blood sugar at any one time. So even if their sugar level looks normal, they might be having a, a, a what I call like a volatility of blood sugar. Mm. Right. So I think one way I would explain it sometimes to, to patients is like the stock market. You want it to be very like even, you don't want it to be like up, down, up, down. That's, that's stressful. And in the same way, you know, a blood sugar being up, down, up, down is very stressful to your brain and to your adrenal glands and things like that. Yeah. So what are some things you typically recommend when you find someone has that, that volatile blood sugar to help them stabilize it? A lot of times it's, you know, what we call a carbohydrate intolerance. So carbohydrates aren't inherently bad, but a lot of people eat too many. So we might, we might reduce the carbohydrate load. We might give people sort of these plans for, you know, different things like intermittent fasting, which is a very hot topic, you know, can help brain health. We can have people eat more fats and proteins. We have a whole group of functional nutritionists, naturopathic doctors, and others that are really experienced in nutrition that, that, you know, we can, we can send, send them to as well. And then when the blood sugar is controlled, or at least let less up and down. What are some things that your patients report as improving? They can think better, you know, that their memory is better. They have less brain fog. They have more energy. They don't get those crashes after meals. 
So it's really life-changing for a lot of people. Also, some people get sleeping issues. We talked about sleep in the beginning of this. They have insomnia. Some of that insomnia is caused by low blood sugar crashes in the, in the nighttime. I know uh, several years ago, you know, I was probably not eating as well myself. And I noticed that when I started to eat slightly less carbohydrates and kind of manage like when I'm eating, like timing of meals and things, I wouldn't wake up in the middle of the night hungry. Whereas, you know, before I did, so now I, I never do that probably because of course I should knock on wood and never say never, but you know, if, if I, if I eat, you know, more proteins and fats with carbohydrates, then, and, and I kind of time my meals and things, so I'll at least do 12 hours on 12 hours off, which basically means probably, you know, eating from let's say 7am to 7pm kind of thing as a, as a default, and then not eating after seven, something like that. So my body's kind of gotten used to that rhythm. So there's no there's no like waking up in the middle of the night feeling hungry kind of thing, which is what, what I used to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then you can address some of the insomnia piece too Correct. through the blood sugar. Right. Very good. So what are some, let's say the primary issue wasn't blood sugar for someone, what would be the, the next place you would look and how would you address that? For brain health in general, or um, I, I would sure. say one of the big things we have to rule out, and I think this is a very common thing, is sleep apnea. People mm-hmm. have um, undiagnosed sleep apnea. You don't have to have snoring to have sleep apnea. If they're not getting enough oxygen at night, then their brain will degenerate. It's just very simple as that. So a lot of people with, with like cognitive impairment, let's say, they actually have undiagnosed sleep apnea. And once you correct the sleep apnea, they actually get much better. And what are some root causes of sleep apnea? Metabolic syndrome itself. So just having too much fat and too much sort of inflammation around the airways and the the soft tissue there, it can be one of the big causes of of sleep apnea. You can have things like nasal septal deviation. You can have sinus congestion and things that impair the oxygen flow just through the nasal passages. You can have also, uh, and our friends that are natural dentists and physical therapists are are more experienced than I am about this, but I think you can have myofascial dysfunction, you know, sort of cranial dysfunction and things like that. And and the jaw structure will also impact. And, and, and I think the, the mouth diam, uh, the, the airway diameter rather would, would, would also affect risk of sleep apnea. So there's actually, you know, people out there that can help reverse sleep apnea naturally with, with things like natural dentistry and myofascial release. Very good. Yeah, I think that is something we don't often think about when thinking about brain fog or depression or dementia. So great tip there. And like you said, if there's not enough oxygen, we just can't function optimally. Yes, we should talk about the gut because, you know, functional medicine is all about, you know, health starting in the gut, disease beginning in the gut if it's imbalanced. And the gut is actually where most of your neurotransmitters are made. You know, most mm-hmm. of the uh, of the serotonin is made in the gut. Um, about half of the dopamine is made in the gut. So a lot of these big neurotransmitters that are involved in things like thinking and mood and feeling happy and everything are, are made in the gut. And we know that if there's gut inflammation, which could manifest as you know someone having bloating or cramping or something like that, but it could also be asymptomatic, meaning they 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 don't have any, they don't feel any gut symptoms, but for some reason they're not absorbing the nutrients. And their gut is sort of what we call subclinically inflamed. So, so they don't feel symptoms, but then when we do these stool tests, which we call microbiome tests, it actually uncovers inflammation. It might uncover 
gut infections or might uncover low digestive enzymes and things. So we, we do like in functional gastroenterology, we kind of do these microbiome tests that can tell us if there's anything quote unquote under that hood, so to speak of, of you know, if there's gut dysfunction. And if there is gut inflammation, then that will deplete the neurotransmitters. It will actually deplete the, the gut's um, ability to make these quote unquote neurotransmitters which uh, even though it says neurotransmitters, we should all, and some of them are made in the brain, we should call them gut transmitters instead of neurotransmitters because they're made in the gut too. And then if they're not made in the gut in adequate amounts, then, then someone's gonna feel tired. Someone's gonna feel depressed or, or have ADD, you know? So all these kind of labels, diagnostic labels, a lot of times, a lot of these mood issues do, do um, originate in the gut and then can be treated from treating the gut as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so fascinating. But- more I learn about the connection between the gut and brain, it still amazes me, even though it's been around for a little while now. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I think you've given us some examples of how this can really impact people's lives with some of the maybe less severe symptoms like brain fog, but have you seen changes in people with a dementia diagnosis through addressing some of these underlying causes? Yes. Yeah, so, so we have a patient that is, has been diagnosed with early stage dementia and she was found to have sleep apnea. And then, you know, she's been treated with a CPAP, which is a continuous positive airway pressure, meaning a, a, you know, CPAP mask. So that that's been helping her sleep. She's been taking some supplements for sleep as well. She's also been addressing her vascular system. So we found that she had low nitric oxide, which nitric oxide is a gas that we, we all naturally make, but that level usually goes down over time as we all get older. And so nitric oxide helps keep the arteries open. So if we have low nitric oxide, we're gonna get what's called vasoconstriction, the constriction of the arteries, and that's gonna decrease blood flow to all parts of the body, including the brain. So, so her low nitric oxide needed to be addressed. We make sure she's on some dietary nitrates. We ever see our functional nutritionist. She's eating more salads, you know, eating more leafy greens, beets and things like that. She's taking a beetroot powder extract as a supplement to help increase that nitric oxide. So it's increasing the blood flow to her brain cells, to her neurons and everything. We also gave her some different things like compounded medication called low-dose naltrexone, LDN, which is a really good medication to help decrease glial cell activation. So the glial cells are these supportive cells around the brain, around the main brain cells, around the neurons. So you have a neuron, maybe for one neuron, you have like 10 glial cells around it to help support the function of that neuron. But glial cells can get um, dysfunctional and and inflamed in in the case of Alzheimer's. So so you want to actually sort of uh, deactivate or or de-inflame the glial cells. So low-dose naltrexone is really helpful for that. So you can see it's kind of a multi-pronged approach. She had some thyroid dysfunction. So low thyroid function can actually impact memory and mood and everything, meaning like a decline in memory, decline in mood. So, you know, we found that she had some thyroid issues, meaning low thyroid issues. We're giving her thyroid hormone, supporting her nutritionally as well. And, and her thyroid functions better. So with all these things, and she wasn't able to really get around her house without putting post-it notes everywhere to have a remember task, you know, so she would like put 50 post-it notes, let's say around her house. And, you know, this is about six months into her treatment. She's not needing to do that anymore. She's able to remember her tasks and be more functional. So she's really the best she's been in, in many years. And we've done some cognitive testing on her kind of pre and post to kind of prove that her, her mental status and her brain health is getting better. 
So for instance, she went from a one percentile, meaning she, she had, you know, she was worse than 99% of people that did this cognitive test to now she's at the 65th percentile. And this isn't a person with dementia, which, you know, conventional medicine usually says, well, there's nothing we can do about that. Mm-hmm. So there clearly is, but if we find the root causes and address that, then that, that's where there's hope. Yeah, that's an amazing story. And some things I want to highlight, like you said, usually with dementia, the goal is to mitigate the decline, but you're actually finding you can make very large improvements when you address some of these underlying issues. And then the other thing, just to highlight the integrative approach, you're not sending her to five different physicians to manage five different parts of the body in their own little silos. You're looking at the person as a whole and addressing everything you're finding in this root cause way. And I will say too, Caroline, that we are friendly with our conventional colleagues. So an integrator approach combines the best conventional and more natural treatments. So we'll make sure that someone with dementia does have a neurologist and we'll Mm -hmm. talk with them about, you know, what we're doing too often. So I think, I think it's important for listeners to know that it's not a, it's not a yet either, or it's really Mm -hmm. more of a both both and, you know, what would be sort of the ideal situation. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. I think it's nice for people to know too, that at least one person is thinking about the full picture as well, and really trying to bring everything together for the, for the overall health. Yeah, and I think I think as physicians and, and clinicians in general, we all just need to be more open-minded and communicate with each other. I think that's the best way to, that's going to be best for the patient, really. Mm-hmm. Let's say someone is concerned about their brain health. When would be the right time to reach out for help? Pretty much any time. I mean, you know, I think there's that, that, a dodger saying that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I forgot who said that. Maybe Benjamin Franklin. Someone, someone way back when said that. And so it's easier to treat someone, you know, with prevention. You know, it's easier to prevent something than to treat something, of course. But, you know, I think if someone is really concerned about their brain health, or maybe they even have a family history of dementia or, or cognitive issues or mood issues, even, you know, I think a lot of people now. I know anxiety and depression and and all these mood issues spiked up too during the pandemic, you know, let's say, but, you know, I I think really at any time someone could reach out and we, we actually have what I call a lab test for the brain, you know, so this is a pretty revolutionary idea that really got popularized more out in the civilian population in 2009 called a quantitative EEG. So we actually run that in our clinic here. We try to run it through insurance. We have someone, you know, check that in case anyone's wondering about that. But that is a test that's going to look at brain functionality and the, the wavelengths, meaning the frequencies of, of the brain in different regions of the brain. So like the frontal region in the front or the occipital region in the back, temporal, temporal region, parietal region that are involved in different brain functions as the person's doing some cognitive task. So it's a functional EEG as opposed to like a regular EEG that's looking at just a, a qualitative yes or no, you know, are there spikes in this area or not. This is more of a qualitative, how much uh, brain activity is happening in different areas. And it can tell that person a lot about function. And one thing that I, I learned, especially this year, is that, you know, abnormalities or, or imbalances in brain activity is actually the root cause of, of anxiety, depression, trauma, you know, cognitive impairment. In other words, it's not just that what we see on a brain map in terms of 
you know, different colors and, you know, different basically activities of the brain is, is a consequence of a diagnosis. So in our clinic, we use a quantitative EEG. So it's different than a, a regular EEG because it looks at the quantitation of brain waves across different areas of the brain. So what that means is we can have someone with anxiety, let's say that has a high beta wave activity, or we can have someone with depression that has a low frontal wave activity in the alpha region of the brain, which is a certain area of the brain, a certain uh, frequency rather of the brain, or we can have someone with a high delta activity and, and a, what's called a low peak alpha frequency. So there's all these different patterns and that would, that would imply more of a cognitive impairment, that latter pattern. So what we see in these kind of patterns of, of brain waves is that they're not only predictive of what's going on, but they're often the root cause of why, why these things are happening in the brain. So I think this is what, you know, we would almost nickname a lab test for the brain. And this is something that was brought out by a neuropsychologist, Dr. David Hagedorn, back in 2009, after, after being kind of tested and, and tried in the, in the armed forces for a couple of decades, it's kind of gotten out to the civilian population fairly recently in 2009. So we've been offering this brain mapping in our clinic, basically how's the health of your brain, you know, since about uh, 2018. And it's been really, really helpful for our patients because we've often had, you know, lab tests for cholesterol or blood sugar or kidney function and things like that through blood work. And that can tell you about physical health, but we, we never really had a test that looks at mental health and brain health and that how that is really showing up physiologically until then. So this is a real game breaker, I think, for the fields of like mental health and brain health and, and including in, in elderly individuals as well. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. I think I heard maybe on a TED talk a long time ago that until recently, psychiatrists and psychologists were the only providers who didn't study the organ they were treating. And this seems like a way or at least image it or really look into the structure of it. And this seems like a way we can start to look at the physiology of the brain and treating some of these conditions. Yeah. I mean, it's really whatever condition someone's coming in with, even if it's a gut health issue or hormone health issue or an immune health issue, it's all about brain health. You know, we need, we need the brain for every other organ to function. So it, it makes sense from a more connect the dots perspective, like a functional medicine perspective to assess the brain as well. You know, even if someone doesn't have a direct brain issue, it's going to affect those other organs kind of downstream. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think you've given us a nice overview of how you approach these different conditions, what sort of root cause factors you look at, both lifestyle factors like nutrition, activity, daylight exposure, and then some metabolic factors with blood sugar and then sleep apnea. And now with the EEG, is there anything else you want to share with us about your approach or how you can help people with um, either mood or cognitive issues? Well, I think on the mood and cognitive issue perspective, if someone has a mood issue like anxiety, depression, or maybe even recognized or unrecognized trauma like PTSD, then we do want to usually use that brain map, whether or not, whether they are or are not on medication, because that, that can actually tell you, tell that person also, you know, how the, how the medication is working or not mm -hmm. working. So that, that can be very helpful. Um, so that's important. Um, I think from a cognitive issue perspective, we use something called the Bredesen protocol. Dr. Gail Bredesen is a neurologist that is, was originally based out of UCLA. 
that I think for the first time of uh, several years ago now, within the last 10 years, I would say, you know, he, he really demonstrated that Alzheimer's for some people at least could be halted or even reversed. And this is a game breaking kind of thing. This is published in journals, peer reviewed journals. So there is hope out there and we use his protocol and we found good results, you know, with it. You know, not everyone gets the same results, of course, but, and it's, it's a very multi-pronged approach, but using nutrition, lifestyle movement, some of the underlying core factors I was saying earlier, using a functional medicine analysis of their gut, their hormonal health, things like that, their brain health. This is, this is really a way to potentially move the needle for someone, you know, for their brain health. Yeah. It's such an exciting thing to be a part of right now. It's Alzheimer's and dementia are such a big, big, big problem. And I think what, at least in the people I work with and their family members, what people are the most afraid of with getting older is having a, a dementia diagnosis. And to know that there's evidence-based work out there showing that we can actually improve this or at least mitigate it is so exciting for me. <laughs> it is. And I think just another point real quick uh, is that is that you know your genetics are not your destiny. There's actually some genes out there that increase the risk of Alzheimer's, namely APOE4. But Dr. Bredesen showed in his studies whether or not someone had a single copy of APOE4 or a double copy, he, you know, he was still able to demonstrate a lot of those people were able to get reversal of their Alzheimer's. So, so that's why it's important for listeners to know that genetics can be influenced by nutrition and lifestyle factors. A lot of these factors can influence the expression of those genes so that their genetics are not their destiny. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it's fascinating. It is, it is. Dr. Wong, thank you so much for your wealth of knowledge, the way you integrate all aspects of health and for sharing with us today. Do you have any closing thoughts for us? Thank you, Caroline, for inviting me on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Um, you can, um, I would say, you know, brain health is something that really we need to focus on throughout our, our lives. And, and I think, you know, I think there's a saying again that, you know, small steps every day lead to giant progress. So this idea of we have to, you know, hit a home run and do it all at one time is, is a myth, right? You know, it's really these small calculated steps. That's where, you know, health coaching can come in and really kind of being very disciplined, but systematic and routine about it, you know, maybe if someone just cuts out their can of Coke every day, that might be the first step, you know, something like that. Or if they're wanting to move their body more and increase circulation, maybe, and they're, you know, sitting on the couch and they, they have arthritis and things, maybe, maybe just moving five minutes a day, you know, for the first month might be the first thing to do, right? If they're having sleeping issues, maybe trying to dial back the the time to go to sleep from, you know, 1am, which is a not good time to go to sleep to midnight, you know, or something like that. It's, it's not a, it's not the, the, the kind of quote unquote perfect plan, but it's, it's something that's going to move the needle for them slowly if they keep on doing those small incremental changes over time. So that's what I would kind of leave listeners with is, you know, small steps incrementally executed will lead to giant progress over time. Mm -hmm. And really sustainable progress too. I think some, we can do a big effort for a short amount of time, but that doesn't always work out. So in I the love, long run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and your practice again is Capital Integrative Health. Do people have to be in the area to work with you? Capital Integrative Health. So we have we have a website called uh, www.cihealth.com. 
cihealth.org, which is just capital integrative health, cihealth.org. And I think that as long as they can come in once a year to us, we have been seeing some people via telehealth with all the COVID rules and stuff remotely. Um, I, I think we're kind of more focusing on locally though, people in the DMV or, or people that are, if they're, if they're out of state, if they can come in to us, you know, at least once, um, that would be better, I think here. In the future, we'll probably plan to have a, a more robust telehealth platform and, and things as kind of things evolve. But, but certainly, yeah, we, we definitely want to want to see people with cognitive issues, brain issues, you know, which is really can affect everyone, I think, you know, and, and like, like we said before, it's, it's about not only treatment, but it's also about prevention, too. Yeah, wonderful. Dr. Wong, thank you so much. I think this will be an interview to listen to multiple times to really grasp all of the information you've shared with us. Thank you, Caroline. Okay. Pleasure to be on today. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and does not create a provider-patient relationship between us. If you have questions about your health, please speak to a qualified health professional. If you would like to learn more about working with me as your qualified health professional, please visit carolinemorris.com. Did you know that gratitude is good for your health? If you found value in this episode, please share it with a friend and leave a rating or review. To keep the connection going, subscribe to Elder Health Connection on your favorite podcast player to get immediate access to upcoming episodes. Thank you for listening. With love and gratitude, Caroline.